Good afternoon on what started out as a cold Northeast Vermont morning at zero. We're now at 25 at the headquarters of Bob's World. Welcome to Monday, January 25th, 2021. I'm Bob Welch. The temperature is going back down to single digits tonight as well, though maybe a little bit warmer than last night. High up to 30 tomorrow under a mix of clouds and sun. We're much warmer tomorrow night in the lower 20s as we get some snow amounting to just an inch. Wednesday, occasional show, snow, high 32, and after the snow moves out, we're back to highs in the low 20s. For Thursday, high just 6 on Friday under sunny skies. The regional roundup at 345 as we're recording this. The warm spots are Central Park, Manhattan, checking in with 37. Boston, Hartford, Connecticut, and Hyannis on Cape Cod with 36. In New York's Putnam County, it's 34. Hello, Brewster. Albany, 32, and Montreal has 21, all under sunny skies, repeating our St. Johnsbury temperature, 25, going down to 5 degrees tonight. Coming up, students and distance learning. You're listening to Bob's World. We're heard on Spotify, on Anchor, on Breaker. We're on Google Podcasts and many more outlets for you to listen to me on. This story from the Boston Globe caught my eye about students remotely attending school, which affects an awful lot of people, an awful lot of parents, of which I am one. And the cameras on the computers they're logging in from. Hadn't thought about this. Like many students forced to attend school remotely, Adriana Cepeda had no calm, quiet place at home for logging onto classes. Other household members showed up frequently on camera, and it was often loud enough to be distracting. So the teenager, a junior at Boston's Latin Academy, started logging in from a nearby Boys and Girls Club instead. It helped her focus, but it also made her feel exposed. Would her classmates wonder what was wrong at home? To solve her problem and put her mind at ease, Cepeda opted to turn off her camera. Until, that is, her school adopted a new policy last month, allowing teachers to lower students' grades if they fail to keep their laptop cameras on. Driven by the belief that students get more out of remote learning when they stay on camera, the change has elicited criticism from some of the school's 1,800 students, and it has revealed layers of nuance surrounding a seemingly simple decision made with a click of a mouse on a tiny camera-shaped icon. At this diverse public school in the city of Boston, where equity looms large, some students near the, fear the new policy puts a heavier burden on low-income students who are more likely to live in small, crowded homes with unreliable internet service. Forcing cameras to be on when students are uncomfortable is not fair or efficient for learning, Cepeda wrote in an email. If you want to know that a student is paying attention, call on them. If they don't answer, take points off. Schools across the country weighed the risks and benefits of camera mandates in the fall and most enacted some kind of requirement. A national survey of 790 educators in grades K through 12, conducted by the Education Week Research Center in October, 
found more than three-quarters, 77 percent, require cameras to be on in their classes. Nearly 20 percent said they make no exceptions. Being a teenager is difficult enough. I try to put myself in the teenager's shoes for just a moment and wonder if the peer pressure to look right on camera is also there as a sort of in-the-background kind of pressure, aside from all of the other things. In a related story from the New York Times today, school days at the Diallo sisters' apartment in the Bronx can be hectic. Adama, the oldest, attends high school from the black couch in the corner of their apartment. In a family homeless shelter, her 10-year-old sister, Huau, sits nearby at the dining table, firing back answers to her math teacher's questions. Her youngest sister, 7-year-old Asiatu, sprawled on a bed in the other room, giggles her way through her second-grade lessons. The 14-year-old Adama tells the Times, It's noisy. Still, the family's remote learning setup works. The operator of their shelter got the place wired for Wi-Fi in the spring, shortly after the pandemic shut down schools so that students from the building's 79 families could attend school online. Uh, at 15 years old, Aaron Morris's apartment at a shelter in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. It's a different story. He's still getting kicked offline many times a day, and it has affected his grades and his mood. He tells the Times, it upsets me to the point I just want to quit and not go to school at all. He said that earlier this month. Providing reliable Internet access to New York City's 111,000 children in homeless shelters and unstable housing has been one of the most stubborn obstacles to getting online schooling right. And for many students, there's no relief in sight. The city of New York belatedly started putting Wi-Fi in 200 family shelters in November, and says it won't finish until the end of summer after a second pandemic school year has come and gone. In November, when a lawsuit demanded that the city of New York speed up and complete the Wi-Fi project by early January, the city protested that it was being asked to perform the impossible, listing 14 bureaucratic hurdles to be cleared at each shelter before installation could even begin. But operators who collectively run more than a dozen of the city's 200 family shelters have proved it's not impossible at all. Recognizing the urgency of the situation, the New York Times reports, no connection means no school, they took it upon themselves to get their buildings wired months ago and got it done within weeks, most for a fraction of what the city is paying the cable giant Spectrum and Optimum to do the job over nearly a year. The city is installing cable and a Wi-Fi router in every shelter apartment, while most shelters that did it themselves had contractors install access points in hallways that they say provide fine service. Let's think about the long-haul truckers for a moment. This story from the Globe and Mail out of Toronto does, as it highlights the story of Zafar Saeed, his routine journeys to California can feel calm, meditative even, 
until he runs out of packed food and has to stop for a meal. His work is a long-haul truck driver, which involves hauling crates of fruits and vegetables to the Ontario Food Terminal in Toronto from California several times a month was deemed essential at the start of the pandemic. The job puts him at heightened risk of COVID-19 when he travels to the United States and of infecting others when he returns home, since truckers who cross the border are exempt from the Federal Quarantine Act in Canada, which requires 14 days of self-isolation for people re-entering Canada from another country. He tells the Toronto Globe and Mail, you, come, you love to come back home and see your family. I was also scared that at least I should not be the reason to infect them with disease. Long-haul truckers such as Mr. Saeed of the Toronto suburb of Mississauga are the invisible, often forgotten essential workers who have kept shelves stocked, Canadians fed, and the economy running, at least somewhat, since COVID-19 hit early last year. Of course, there's countless other truckers all over North America doing similar jobs. Taking fruits and vegetables to your city or town. In 2019, Peel Region of Ontario, which includes Mississauga and Brampton, was home to approximately 2,000 trucking companies and $1.8 billion, with a B, dollars of goods traveled daily through the region. The highways that pass through Peel, just west of Toronto, carry the highest truck volumes on the continent of North America. But for drivers and their families, there's a fear those same highways could bring the virus back into their homes. This is Bob's World. If there's anything you want to drop in to let me know, call the Talkback Machine. It's available for you 24 hours a day. The telephone number is Elvermont, 802-467-0212. 802-467-0212. Just leave your message along with your name and and uh, community from which you're calling. And when you leave a message on the talkback machine, you are consenting to that message being put on future broadcasts of Bob's World. This is Monday, January the 25th, the 25th day of 2021, with 341 days left in the year. Today's birthdays include... Drummer Joe Sirua of the Mighty Mighty Bostones, who is 48. Singer Alicia Keys is 40. In 1915, America's first official transcontinental telephone call took place as Alexander Graham Bell, who was in New York, spoke to his former assistant, Thomas Watson, who was in San Francisco, over a telephone line set up by American Telephone and Telegraph. In 1924, the first Winter Olympic Games opened in Chamonix, France. In 45, the World War II Battle of the Bulge ended as German forces were pushed back to their original positions. In Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1945, that became the first community to add fluoride to its public water supply. 
1947, gangster Al Capone died in Miami Beach, Florida. He was just 48. But oh, what a life he lived. He was caught on tax evasion charges, not for running booze, bootleg booze, during Prohibition. Yes, there was a time when alcohol was absolutely forbidden. And it was during that time when he found a marketplace. 1971, Charles Manson and three women followers were convicted in Los Angeles of murder and conspiracy on the 1969 killings of seven people, including actress Sharon Tate. 1981, the 52 Americans held hostage by Iran for 444 days arrived in the United States. In 1990, an Avantia Boeing 707 ran out of fuel and crashed in Covenac, Long Island, New York. 73 of the 158 people aboard were killed, and actress Ava Gardner died in London at age 67 on this date in 1990. Sears also announced that it would no longer publish its famous century-old catalog, I wonder, what is a store website aside from an online catalog where you can point and click and have it mailed to you? Had they only had a little bit more forethought, they might still be in business today. With a change of administrations, it looks like Harriet Tubman is once again headed to the front of the $20 bill. The Associated Press reports today that Biden Press Secretary Jen Psaki said today that the Treasury Department is taking steps to resume efforts to put the 19th century abolitionist leader on the 20. Obama Administration Secretary of the Treasury Jack Lew had selected Tugman to release to replace Andrew Jackson, the nation's seventh president on the 20. But Tubman's fate had been in doubt since the 2016 presidential campaign based on critical comments made by then-candidate Donald Trump, who branded the move, quote, pure political correctness. Trump administration Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin did not move forward with the decision by the Obama administration. Instead, Mnuchin in 2019 announced a delay in redesigning the 20 in order to redesign the 10 and the $50 bills first to improve security features to thwart counterfeiters. And now something for last, and we got to set the stage with something, so why not this? When news breaks in the tri-state area or the world, you'll hear it here on WCBS New York. And that radio station today announced this voice is hanging up the mic next month. We are right in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral. You can look up at the spires there. You can see the uh, green, white, and gold of, uh, of Ireland. The Irish tricolor, which is waving in the breeze. The sunshine has just recently uh, broken out here along Fifth Avenue. It was very cold this morning, about 28 degrees when we started, and now it's in the mid-40s, so it really has warmed up. But the spirits of everybody here have been warm all along. Lots of cheering, uh, lots of wearing of the green, and we've seen uh, representatives of all kinds of counties of Ireland from Armagh to Dublin to Donegal to Galway to Cork and, uh, and, and everyone in between. 
Uh, we have seen representatives of the uh, Irish Navy here, uh, Irish police force. We saw a man whose back said Garda, which means uh, that you're a cop in Ireland. And of course, the NYPD represented here. And that is the unmistakable voice, to those who would know it in a second, of Rich Lamb. To those who have been blessed to have been by a radio which has picked up that station in the greater New York area or any one of the 30-plus states and I'm guessing at least five or six provinces who have been able to hear that station after nightfall and before dawn on their 50,000-watt clear channel signal broadcasting from High Island in the Bronx. And, of course, now it's, it's on the Radio.com app now as well as the signal that booms in. That clip you heard was from the 2018 St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City, and each word you heard came from his lips and was not on a sheet of paper. Anybody can read a script with relatively little difficulty. Sometimes I have difficulty. Writing a script ahead of time is the most predictable. After all, words matter, and you need to get them correct. But to be able to do what he does in that and describe things on the fly in such detail, that's an art form. I recall once hearing Rich Lamb describe a funeral procession for a fallen FDNY firefighter, which has got to be the most difficult of assignments. The sad stories. He didn't just tell you what happened, which he did very well, but he took you there. Radio's an art form, and Rich Lamb is somewhere between Leonardo da Vinci and Pablo Picasso. We're going to miss your reports on WCBS, though I have not met you, but... We still have one more month to listen before that happens. How long has he been at WCBS? Since February the 26th, 1978. I was born on May 20 of that year. Another thought I had. There's a, a half an hour interview that um, Tony Guida had with him on uh, Tony Guida's New York. It's a... Uh, it's a series produced by CUNY, City University of New York, and it's on their YouTube page, but you can find it on YouTube. And it's a solid half an hour of, of, of these two. And, uh, of course, Tony Gutt is a great reporter from New York as well. And, and it's these two people talking about t just sharing stories about reporting in New York and some of the some of the amazing things that have happened and that that they've told through the radio or for Tony Gaida's case radio and TV over their career. It was done a couple of years ago, but it's an amazing story. So so go to YouTube and watch that and uh, and uh, uh, listen to WCBS for the next. <laughs> if you're like if you're like me and you're listening to this, you probably do anyway. It's a magnificent radio station. So that is Bob's World on this Monday, January the 25th, 2021. I'm Bob Welch. Thanks for listening.